Like fashion trends and hairstyles, the way we bank has evolved with time. I think of how my mom banked, getting dressed up and walking down to the branch two blocks from our house when I was a kid. I think of how I bank, child of the 80s and 90s, I'd flip up my laptop and hit a dot com. And I think of how my daughter banks. She's a millennial, so she's banking on her phone, banking on her watch, you know, through apps. That's Matt Lessig. He's vice president, next generation banking at FIS. And I think how much it's changed just in those three generations. And I told that story to a CIO of one of our clients. And he said, that's great, Matt, but how's that next generation going to bank? How's her kids going to bank? Right? So just in those few generations, how banking software has changed and how banking in the industry has changed and how it services its customers, that next generation is really what we're focused on. So you're really trying to stay one step ahead of the curve. We're actually trying to define the curve, not just step ahead of the curve, but what we're trying to do is define what that curve is, what those solutions are, and not just meet the needs of some of our clients, but also help them define where the industry is going. This is Financial Futures, a podcast that charts the frontiers of fintech innovation. I'm your host, Erin Dangler. In this season, we're focusing on banks' digital transformation. Digitization is no longer optional for financial institutions. It's necessary. We'll unpack what this trend means for banks, consumers, and communities alike. In this episode, Matt Lessig, Vice President Next Generation Banking at FIS, joins us to discuss how future clients will bank in real time. We'll explore why making the switch to real time can be complex, but worthwhile for banks and consumers. So let's take a step back and talk about how banks traditionally move money so that we can get some context. One of my areas that I kind of came up in the industry was in core banking, right? In a traditional banking, core is kind of at the heart of a bank's ecosystem. The, the core solution is, is really the system of record of where your customer information usually is, where your account information is, you know, your counter accounts, the transactions that you post, how you're managing your money, right? Where your money is really sitting, essentially. It's not the only solution a bank has by any means. Most, most banks and financial institutions have many, many solutions, but core is really definitely one of the central ones. It's usually where the heavy, heavy lifting is done. And by heavy lifting, I mean accepting checks that are coming in, accruing interest on your account, if it accrues interest, doing some automatic payments. It's where a lot of the heavy processing is done, usually overnight in a bank. And that's where a lot of the money movement is, is occurring, right? Money coming in through ACH or, or checks, money going out the same way, other ways to other solutions or other banks. As technology's kind of evolved, that's taken a lot of different forms from manually inputting that information into a system to loading files, text files that systems exchange that are still happening today, ACH, still all files, to real-time posting, real-time processing of these transactions through API calls from different channels. You know, we were just talking about using everything from a laptop to a phone to even a watch to Alexa, right? They're all different channels, but at the end of the day, where your account is and where those transactions are hitting are the same place. It's that, that core solution in the bank. Now, one of the traditional forms of that posting of those transactions was called memo posting. Memo posting was a term used in traditional banking environments where a lot of batches or jobs are set up overnight and files will come in and hard post. But what would actually happen is banks would post a temporary credit or debit, make an entry to the account or a soft posting earlier for which the eventual complete posting would, would eventually update that balance, be part of that end of day job. And then the actual money was actually in the account. 
So some accounts might look like they're updated throughout the day, but they're not actually updated to the end of the day. And we actually still have a lot of banks today that are processing memo posting. I, yeah, I see that on my statements all the time. Memo posting, I'm like, oh, what's that? Oh, okay. Just means they know that I went to the store and paid that money, but it hasn't actually left my account yet or processed yet. Hasn't cleared and settled yet. Exactly. Because that hard post hasn't actually happened later at night. And a lot of banks, especially in North America, have been slow to move towards real time. They're still memo posting. They're still posting in batch. It's why you might not see funds clear for a couple of days or checks clear for a couple of days. Whereas in real time posting, the movement towards real time posting of transactions and real time banking allows you that immediate availability of funds. It allows you that immediate gratification of my money is there. And there's a lot of subsequent things that then allows a bank to do. Uh, for example, when I do an immediate real-time posting and deposit funds, I can immediately go online and see my balance has been increased. Now, there are some batch of memo post systems that have built some things around it to make it look like the money's there. But in a real-time solution, the money really is there. You can place a hold against those funds. You can transact against those funds. And in a real-time posting solution, it's not just about funds availability. That's one of the big things. But it also means I can send out a real-time alert, right? I can, I can have real-time fraud prevention. I can not only see that my wife withdrew funds from an ATM across town, but I can also get an alert to see where it was used, how it was used, and it was I can contact her and confirm it was really her or really me if I did it. So it's not just about the funds availability, but it's also about real-time fraud prevention, real-time uh, alerts of transactions. Maybe now that I did that transaction or she did, I, could, I want to move funds somewhere else to another account to cover another transaction. It gives me that kind of power over my money, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes total sense. Yeah. And um, you talked about not just posting it. Like I, I've seen also terms that say your available balance versus your real-time balance, where your available balance is like, this is what's here now because not everything is processed or moved. So you could get into some trouble there. But also from a servicing perspective, right? The client service representatives of a bank are looking at the activity in real time. So if I call up with a question or have a complaint or dispute, no matter what channel I look at the service rep, no matter what branch I go into to our conversation or what service rep answers the phone when I call, they're looking at one place of record, one source of record for my account, my balance, my transactions. So they're servicing me in a better way. They're servicing me with up-to-date activity, up-to-date current information, as opposed to, well, we see the check came in, but it hasn't cleared yet. And we think it'll clear tonight. And, you know, it, it just, it provides a far better customer experience for our, for our banks and for their customers. Yeah, no, I can totally see that. And what trends are driving this change to real time? Well, a lot. <laughs> Pandemic much? <laughs> well, and, and especially, yeah, especially, especially that, you know, I've, I've been in this industry since right out of college. So almost 30 years. I've been working with real-time solutions that entire time. So real-time posting in the banking world, it, it isn't new. But in North America especially, we've been slow to move to it. A lot of the, the banks I initially worked with were international. I spent most of my early years in Europe and in Asia, not in the US, implementing these types of solutions because we were a little slow to move to that. Because replacing a core solution, as I described earlier, is kind of the spine. It's kind of the heart of an ecosystem for a bank. It's not something you can just rip out and replace. Banks tried to do it for many years, and it costs hundreds of millions of dollars for some large banks to try to do. And, and there's no guarantee it'll be successful when you do try to do it. So a lot of banks you know, tend to try to build around it. They tend to try to make it look like it's real time when it's really not. And they're layering like satellite operations on top of the old systems, right? Exactly. 
it's called two-speed architecture where they still have that old engine in the car, but they've put, you know, all the new sexy, fancy, up-to-date things around it to make it look like it's a new car, but you're still running that old engine behind it. Well, eventually that old engine is going to die. It only has a lifespan of so long, no matter how much you build around it or how much you put into it. And what we've seen is a lot of banks obviously have spent a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of effort, and now it's just exponentially growing how much they need to maintain these old engines, as I described it, or old systems, right? It's just becoming too cumbersome, too costly, and eventually going to start limiting them because we just described those three, four generations, how much the industry has changed. How much more can those older engines, those older cores keep up with that technology? You know, I saw a, a, a statistic that upwards of 3 billion people is the forecasted number of, of global users They'll have access to retail banking services through smartphones, tablets, PCs, and smartwatches by this year, by the end of this year, 3 billion people. There's so many core solutions out there that just will not be able to maintain that, that volume and maintain all of those things that we just described that are built around it to be able to, to keep pace, basically. So, you know, some of the trends are just the fact that what's out there is just getting too antiquated. Other trends are the way that we just talked about, customer satisfaction, customer experience, immediate gratification. Uh, you know, if you think about our, our, our society, we love fast food because it's immediate gratification. We love streaming movies because it's immediate gratification. You don't even have to go to the movie theater anymore. To your point about the pandemic, paying bills, I'm not writing checks anymore. I'm not going to the mail, the post office to mail those, those checks anymore. These things that we used to do are going away. And as they go away, my experience is changing. My expectations are changing. So moving forward to a more digital world, a more digital banking world is inevitable. Right. And I, I hear you, especially on the, I've talked about this in several episodes is, um, you know, waiting for checks in the mail with what's going on with the postal system. You know, I'm a gig economy worker and I've moved. So now I have a change of address and, and waiting for somebody in accounting to process a check, to put it in the mail for the mail to get routed. It's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. You're absolutely right. And if you think about it, Another trend that's kind of pushing this are some of the new non-traditional challengers, right, in the fintechs and the way in which just our, our industry has evolved, right? It's not the big traditional banks anymore. Um, you've got fintechs that are, you know, startups, basically, startup banks. And to everything we've just discussed, those startups aren't encumbered by that legacy technology. They're not held back by that old engine because they don't have it in place. They can start with the new technology, right? They're starting with real time from the get-go. They're starting with cutting edge technology to be able to process real-time payments and real-time account balances and real-time funds availability. And the legacy banks are trying to keep up and catch up, but they're dealing so with these old antiquated technologies. So also driving the trend isn't so much just customer experience and expectation, but also the fact that that expectation is being met by these fintechs and startups that aren't held back by having a thousand branches, brick and mortar branches they have to maintain and having these systems that might be 20, 30, 40 years old that they have to patch and put band-aids on to try to keep pace. So you start to see major fintech players getting into this space, you know, creating their own currencies or creating their own banking-like accounts and offering out to customer bases that they already have in the millions to say, hey, would you also like to have a bank account with us? And now all of a sudden they're draining some of that customer base from the traditional banks. And to your point about checks, there are challengers out there saying, get your paycheck early, get your paycheck in real time. Why wait two days? Why wait three days with your traditional bank? 
And again, people want their money. People need their money, especially, again, to your point, pandemic these days. So everything's moving towards happening in a far more immediate nature. And eventually the infrastructure within a bank or financial institution to keep up has to be updated to be able to do that. So how do banks transition? You know, are they working with fintechs or fintechs competitors? Can they create or recreate or rebuild their own systems in-house? Great question. And all of the above. <laughs> we're seeing all of the above. So we're seeing fintechs that are working with banks behind the scenes where the bank, you know, has the charter, has all the regulatory compliance things in place and is offering out through those fintechs banking services. One of the main objectives of our new core was to be completely API enabled. So to disconnect those channels we talked about from that core engine that we talked about and allow fintechs or banks or whomever to have an experience that they feel is, is you know, market leading and call agnostic APIs to open an account, post a transaction, do a transfer, and not care what the engine is behind the scenes as long as it, it reacts accordingly. So a lot of what we've seen is some fintechs working with banks behind the scenes to do that, some building their own, to your point, to be more cutting edge and build it the way they want it. And then some cases, what we're seeing with our traditional banks, since they can't quickly move off of their existing technology, they stand up a new bank or a new digital offering on a new core, right? On a new technology. They essentially act like a startup to the side as a new business, maybe even, even under a new name or new brand, and then eventually migrate the rest of their technology or their account base over in pieces rather than holistically. You know, back in the old days when I started, we always had big bang weekends. And those big bang weekends, well, when I was in college, a big bang weekend was go get a keg and park. I was going to say, it's a totally different meaning. <laughs> but in banking, the big bang weekend was we're going to convert your entire bank over this three-day holiday weekend as opposed to in stages or by products or by regions, which also is another approach they can take. What we're seeing now is stand up a new digital offering to help modernize the bank and then migrate over the legacy data and the legacy technology to that new technology, that new standup. So you can do it in pieces, not have to do it all. To my earlier comment, replacing a heart or replacing a spine of a bank is not an easy task. You can't just do it overnight or even in a weekend anymore. And the other ways that we're seeing banks modernize really is doing so by decomposing that core. You know, our cores for a long time in our industry were the end all be all, do everything, had customer, account, transactions, ACH, reporting, uh, it had to do everything. And what we've done now with our new core and what we're seeing the industry go towards is decomposing that into components, future-proof components that are very focused on doing the, what they do and do it well. One of the first, first tenets that I learned in, in software engineering was when you set out to create a software solution, you can either create something that does a whole lot of stuff, really robust in functionality, but it's very complicated to use because it does so many things. Or you can set out to build a very simple thing that does one thing, but does it very, very well. And what we're seeing the industry move towards is for many years, those cores was the do everything, be the end all be all, put it all in that central place because that's where everything was. But they became very cumbersome, very costly and very complex to use. Now we're seeing it break down into components and keep those components very simple and very isolated on what they do, but have them do them very well and then interact with each other through APIs. And then you can keep each piece up to date or with new releases without having to break the rest of the, the pieces or the components in the architecture. So that's really where we see a lot of where our clients now and a lot of the industry is moving towards. 
And uh, I know there are a lot of larger banks that have the resources and have been able to do this. Some of the big name banks are already in real-time banking, but some smaller banks, I've heard that they've kind of banded together to join their resources. Have you heard about that? Or Yes, we've seen that. And, you know, a lot of a lot of banks these days are getting away from trying to host their own solutions and run their own data centers. And because to your point, you know, it's the additional staff, the additional floor space, the additional cost of doing so, of keeping that hardware up to date, the mainframes are starting to not go away, but be repurposed because they did a lot of heavy lifting back in the day, but they also were costly. What we're seeing now is a lot of, to your point, a lot of hosted banking as a service, software as a service, banking as a service, to my point about APIs, where banks don't want to run all of that infrastructure. They don't want to have to try to house and maintain all of that themselves anymore. They wanted to focus on growth, focus on the customer experience where they feel growth is, be able to call agnostic APIs and do all the banking services they need, and be able to rely upon a, a service like, like the FIS services to know that we're handling all of those regulatory needs, that we're handling all of the processing needs, that we're handling all of the the, the reporting needs and making it very easy for them. So in doing so, it reduces costs for the banks because they're sharing some of that, you know, that cost be, because it's a service and it's allowing them to share, not so much share products, what they offer, but share capabilities, right? They're sharing common banking capabilities that they all need and then using that themselves through configuration to build their own business model accordingly. And are there any leaders we should be watching that are making this switch to real-time banking? I mean, you know, I know you said that uh, the U.S. has been slow, um, which traditionally in, in banking technology we have been, but are there other leaders? From a vendor perspective or from the actual banks and financial institutions that are out there? From the actual banks. Okay. Um, they all are in their own time and, and pace approaching it differently, but approaching it, approaching the same thing from different angles is probably the way I would describe it, right? They're all offering mobile apps or partnering with fintechs. They're all offering real-time or near real-time posting. I think the challenger banks have really started to, you know, you see like a Chime, for example, as far as a challenger bank versus some of the larger banks that are, you know, some of which are our clients that are now starting to stand up new offerings. A lot of our large banks are offering new brands to the younger generation, the millennials. I know my daughter, you know, when she picked the college, she didn't want to go to dad's college, wanted to pick her own. Doesn't want to use dad's bank, wants to choose her own, Right. I think we're seeing a lot of our larger uh, players, while they have a customer base in play, they also stand up new brands to try to attract that next customer segment that they haven't attracted yet with some of this newer technology. So, uh, you know, I would look to some of the, the the spinoff brands. I'll give you an example that has been very successful that we work with, Citizens Bank. You know, it's one, I'm outside Philadelphia. Citizens Bank Park, obviously, is the Philly Stadium. Citizens Bank is one of the top, top banks in the country. They set up Citizens Bank Access, right? Has that traditional name but also has that new branding and has been very successful from an internet-only or direct bank-only perspective, digital bank-only perspective. So we're seeing it kind of being approached from all kinds of different angles to be able to address some of what we've talked about today around real-time payments and real-time processing. You know, we FIS, we do a lot of polls and surveys. We work with most of the industry analysts. We work with most of our clients. And, you know, I saw, I think it was like 45% of the respondents to one of our surveys that we just did uh, mid last year said they'd use like a mobile wallet. They've used a mobile wallet in the last 30 days. And over 30% said they, they'd use mobile wallets or contactless payments moving forward. So there you go, they're, they're expecting, and it's growing. They're expecting traditional banks and the challenger banks to be real time and to be immediate. Again, that immediate gratification. People don't wanna carry cash anymore. They don't wanna write checks anymore. 
I mean, there were some people who used to take advantage of the float with a check, <laughs> but most people want to swipe a card or want to swipe their phone or watch, have the payment made immediately, get a notification on the phone that the payment was made, get my balance up to date and see what that impact was to my balance and know that that was a safe transaction because I got alerted to it by my bank and it was me. Uh, and that activity produces that real-time gratification and real-time confirmation. So I want to take a little bit of a step back. This may seem like a strange question, but because we've been talking about this the whole time is how do how do real-time payments relate or how does real-time banking relate to real-time payments? And it's kind of like, which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, did real-time payments start and then banks kind of went, whoa, we got we to gotta catch up with this? Yeah, I, I, you know, that's a great question. And I, I, and I don't know which came first, the chicken or the egg either. So they kind of both evolved. Like I said, I've been doing real-time banking for 30 years, almost 30 years, not to date myself, but were real-time payments around back then? Not really. So I think real-time posting probably kind of evolved first to allow real-time payments to kind of evolve. But I think real-time payments then at some point overtook real-time processing because they became so popular especially internationally, to be able to address some of the, the financial needs of certain countries that needed it before we did here in the States. So I think real-time posting kind of started to say it can be done. You can update balances immediately. I think real-time payments kind of piggyback on that and took off, especially in the last few years. You know, some countries, there's almost no cash. You just use a card. You go up to Canada. I think currency is, it's, it's second thought. It's most people aren't carrying cash around with them. They're using their card for almost everything. And especially with cyber or, or digital currencies now coming, you know, how much longer are we carrying bills in our wallet? So at some point, I think real-time payments kind of took the torch or took the gauntlet and just took off. And now to my earlier point, now that the banks that hadn't gone real-time posting yet are like, oh boy, now we've really got to make the move because this has become the way in which everyone's you know, transacting today. And how can it cut costs? How can real-time banking cut costs, not just for the consumer, which we've already talked about in some um, previous episodes, but for banks? Well, I, I look at it this way. I've broken down, you know, in, in working with the clients I've worked with, the way in which it cut costs and give them benefits kind of into four major areas. There's the customer that we talked about, right? The customer experience, the funds availability, the fraud prevention and real-time alert. So to me, one of the main areas that it helps benefit a bank is the customer. And where that comes into cost is the more I can look at my own balance and know what happened to my account, the less I'm calling, the less client service reps I have to have to answer the phone because the less calls I'm addressing, less instance I'm addressing because I'm kind of servicing myself, right? I've made all the servicing available to me on a website or on an app. I can see when my payment and my check hit. I can see what my balance is. I can see when interest posted and how much. So there's a cost reduction to the bank because they don't necessarily need as many service reps because they're not addressing as many calls because people are servicing themselves. Uh, a second area is, is the business of a bank. They're able to, to go to market faster, time to market in a real-time solution, creation of products and validating those products and the life cycle of those products can be done much faster. So the business can, can offer out products much faster and there you're not you're not having the cost of taking six months to create a product you know one bank i worked with when they moved from a memo post or batch solution to a real-time solution they also reduced the timing of a new product to market from six months down to 20 days you know less than a month and that 20 days was mostly disclosures and just the legal aspects of what they wanted to offer the market and a lot of the direct banks that i worked with coming up through the 90s and early 2000s were offering products like 
so fast that the rest of the market said, we've got to get a product out there in the next few days or we're going to lose that whole customer segment immediately. A CD with that rate, a savings with that much rate, we have to get something out there fast. So not only customer, but from a business perspective, they're going to save money because they can not only offer products faster, but then they can shift resources that were maintaining those products or trying to build it for months and months at a time more towards growth. And, and part of that also is real-time analytics. We haven't really touched upon that, but real-time analytics plays into a part that if I have real-time activity and I know who Matt is and I know what, i got to talk about myself in the third person here, sorry. But <laughs> if, I, if I know who Matt is and I know how he banks and I know how he's transacting, I can tailor in real-time a product offer, a set of product offers for my catalog that fit Matt's needs, right? The example I always give is if, if a bank sees in real-time analytics that, that Matt has had debits to a rental car company four times in the last three months and debits to his mechanic a few times the last few months, it might be time to offer Matt an auto loan or something like that. So if they have my demographics, they might say, oh, we see you know, Matt's daughter now is of age of college. It might be a good time to offer him a college loan. So the more big data that they have in real-time analytics, the more cost they save and the more they can, business, they can grow their business. Now, the third of the four areas I talked to banks about is operations. That's really, I think, where you're going with lower costs. I, I talked about getting off the mainframe. That's one of the costs. Another big one is day two operations. You know, we were talking about memo posting and how things would post overnight, you know, the soft post and then the hard post. Well, a lot of times with that hard post, you don't know that there's a, an NSF, a non-sufficient funds case where I don't have the money at that time or any other type of override or restriction that I need to deal with till the next day. So a lot of banks had what they called day two processing. They'd have to go through exceptions. They'd have to go through these incidents and figure out what happened. Do I go ahead and pay it or do I return it or reject it? And there was a lot of cost with day two processing. But if you think about a real-time solution, I'm dealing with those things immediately as they hit. I'm dealing, when I come go into a branch and post a real-time transaction, I'm dealing right then and there if I have the money to withdraw, not later at night if I actually have the money. So it's dealing with a lot of those exceptions and rejections in real time not later at night and then day two, I got to deal with what happened yesterday. So a lot of the cost operationally is saved off, not just the infrastructure, but also the actual operations as far as dealing with exceptions. And then finally, the fourth area I talk about is just IT itself, right? The new technology that we've talked about. If you're not dealing with as many batches, or you're not dealing with as many batch failures, you're not dealing with as much failover. All of our real-time solutions are 24 by seven by 365, meaning they're up and running constantly. A lot of our clients are direct banks that take transactions around the clock and post in real time around the clock. There's no window where the system has to go down and people can't go into it. So a lot of the costs get saved around uh, not having to research batch failures, not have to deal with as many failovers, not have to deal with as much backups because you're doing immediate what we call replication, business continuity and disaster replication, disaster recovery, and replicating your your production data and production instance to another back, to essentially a live backup. So that if something were to happen or you had to do an upgrade to the machine or janitor tripped over a plug, it merely fails over automatically and the bank is still running. The bank isn't down. You know, we have we have SLAs with our banks of like 99.999, I forget how many nines, that they're up. And the only time we really take it down is to just test in case there was a, you know, nuclear war or, or, or tornado or, you know, earthquake that did take down the primary so the secondary could run. So, you know, there's cost savings throughout. I kind of break them down to those four areas and then dive into those four areas where individual costs can really be measured for a bank and see how much they save, not only in those areas, but then across the enterprise. Is there anything other than changing the infrastructure that's keeping banks from moving to real-time banking? There is. It's not just infrastructure, it's process. It's the people. It's understanding the impact to their business. 
a lot of people know what they know and they know how they work in their bank and it's successful and the bank's successful. So they continue to do that. I think a lot of what holds banks back from moving just yet is just not knowing how to move, right? It's a comfort zone. They, they've been processing this long. The bank is, if the bank is doing well or is efficient uh, or has the perception of being efficient and is growing in account growth, they tend not to want to break what's not broken. So yeah, change what's not broken. But I think when we take a deeper dive and we do a lot of analysis on this, banks aren't as efficient as they think. And they can take advantage of some of these you know, advantages when they start to look at not having to do some of the things I just described and what that then subsequently translates to into subsequent growth. So I think you know what's holding some of it back is infrastructure and technology. Some of it is we've built so many things around this core, we can't just rip it out. How do we move in stages? And that's that brings me to three tenants actually that I often talk to banks about. I get asked a lot, how do we make the move? And do I have to move? And what does it mean to not just my, my bottom line, but what does it mean to my, my processes and my people? I typically talk about three tenants that I often, you know, when comparing real time to batch in their current ecosystem. And the first thing I tell them is that they're not mutually exclusive. Our real-time solutions also do support batches and batch processing. We have a day end. We do jobs overnight to do certain activities, certain capabilities of, of a core. We don't just process everything in real time. Because a lot of I'll talk to a lot of clients and say, oh my God, I'm going to go to real time tomorrow. What does that mean to everything? No, 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 no. A real-time solution can be as real time as you make it. It can start off very batch and evolve within the solution as you evolve your people and your processes to understand what that means to your business model. So real-time and batch aren't mutually exclusive. They can coexist and do coexist in our cores because a lot of the parts of the ecosystem around a bank, even if you put a real-time core solution in, other things like ACH might still be batch. ACH is four or five times during a day, but it's still batch. It's not real-time, truly real-time across the board yet. Uh, A lot of other systems, a bank may not be able to replace it, may not want to. They may have batch solutions that go, we like that. It's doing what it does. That works for us operationally. We're not going to change it. So the first tenant is basically real-time and batch are not mutually exclusive. They can and do coexist. And they, in our real-time cores, they coexist. The second tenant that I kind of tell people then is the fact that even though they coexist, that doesn't mean that you have to do it all at once, right? As I was saying, you can do it in stages. But then the third tenant is, but just because you can do it, don't have to do it all at once and can do it in stages, doesn't mean you buy a real-time solution and stay completely batch. <laughs> Otherwise, why did you buy the real-time solution? If you buy a real-time solution, there's a reason why. And the reason is all the things we've talked about today, all the advantages that can be taken uh, taken advantage of from cost savings to the customer experience to everything that we've discussed. But if you buy a real-time solution and try to turn it into your old batch solution, you've really accomplished nothing other than spending a lot of money on something you're not really leveraging, right? I, I, I use the example of I'm going to go out and buy a Lamborghini and I'm going to put a horse in front of it to pull it. Why would I do that, right? I bought the Lamborghini to drive the Lamborghini at 100 miles per hour not to have the horse pull it behind it and still go slow. Right, right. right. <laughs> and still have to feed the horse and clean up after. <laughs> exactly, right. Oh, yeah, that sounds nasty. <laughs> that gives me a really good visual. So are banks, are any banks getting left behind? Are you seeing that this is going to really 
be sort of the evolutionary turning point where where some end up going out of business because they're not making these changes? I wouldn't say go out of business, but I, I definitely, from talking to industry analysts, to talking to our clients, to talking to some prospects that are that may be not clients of ours, but may, looking to make the move because their current either homegrown solutions are becoming too antiquated. I think some banks are starting to see themselves fall behind. And I think part of that is why you see, as we talked about earlier, some are behind and saying, well, maybe we can enter the market as the charter behind a fintech, or maybe we can enter the market as a stand-up side-by-side, a new offering with new technology. I, I don't want to say they're being left behind, but I think they're being challenged to figure out how they move ahead because you know some have the desire and have the ability to, but just can't figure out how to take that first step. Or they take the first step or second step, but then they get back into their normal day-to-day and realize we can't do it yet. You know, a common uh, discussion that I've had with with some of our clients are, maybe I should wait for the next guy to do this. Why should I do it now? Why should I take the risk? It's a lot of risk. Um, so a lot of what we talk about with, with our clients and, and some prospects and, and people in the industry is, why now? And the why now is, if not now, then when? Because if you wait too long, you are going to be not just falling behind, but potentially challenged to stay in business. Are we still making, to my car analogy, are we still making wagons? Yeah. Are people going out and buying them every day or every week or every month? You're not buying wagons every day. I don't want to say anyone's being left behind. I think every bank and every financial institution and every fintech has their own challenges because they have their own goals. But I think that more and more are starting to realize if they don't do something soon, one of the many angles we've talked about today, they're going to feel left behind and their clients are going to feel like they're being left behind. I don't want to continue to bank with a bank that's going to take me three days to get my money if I can get it immediately over here. I don't want to continue to bank with a bank that I don't know if my transactions are safe till I get a notice two, three days later. I want to know right now that my transaction's safe. Eventually, even the loyalist of customers will flip, will move for that type of servicing, to be honest. So if you could look into your crystal ball, when do you think every part of our banking infrastructure will be real time? Is that possible? Is that future far away? <laughs> I don't think it's that far away at all. I think every aspect of our industry has begun or is already well down the path of the move. And I think that some banks, financial institutions, some vendors like FIS are trying to lead the way. We're leading the way. I, I, you know, I mentioned earlier, we're not trying to manage the curve. We're trying to define the curve right, with how it's going. And I think there are some of our clients who are right there with us. And then there are some that are coming along for the ride and then some that are we're dragging along, right? <laughs> Your very first question to me was what's next generation banking? I think it's really now generation banking. I think it's it's now because now's the time to really move forward. And I think that the more we get there, the more some banks will realize they've already taken some of the steps. They just need to, you know, they just need to take some of the the bigger steps or the final steps. I, I liken it to um, you know, I was working with a, a bank who said we're not ready to modernize yet, but they're using one of our enterprise components. Right, they've decomposed their core a little bit to use one of our enterprise. So you've already started the journey. You've already started that modernization path. You've already started using APIs and started decomposing the core to use our enterprise product offering. And you've started the journey. You may not think you have, but you have. You've already. I think of another metaphor here. You've already you've already put on your bathing suit, gotten your towel, and dipped your toes in the pool. You just got to jump in now. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're already there, right? So I think we're I think we've already gone well on our way. And I think most of the industry has as well. And I think it just has to happen. Things have to happen in the right order or sequence for each each bank and each financial institution and fintech of, of how they want to approach it 
but some have already begun and don't even, may not even realize they've begun it. Matt Lessig is Vice President Next Generation Banking at FIS. That's it for today's episode. Join us next time when we discuss the modernization of retail lending with Andrew Beatty, Senior Vice President, Group Executive, Next Generation Banking at FIS. We'll see you then. Mm-hmm.